Well, where do I begin? You're listening to Who the Chill Cares, and I'm your host, Chelsea. Thank you so much for your patience and understanding in me getting this episode out a couple weeks and a few days late. It was a really hard one for me to go in and edit because I had to listen to it front and back myself, my own stories, a close friend of mine's stories. And I had a lot going on in my personal life the last few weeks as well, really heavily towards the mental health side and someone I care about deeply. And so I really just decided it would be best to take a couple weeks off and make this the best episode it can be. And then I'm going to move on from this and I'll know for sure um, just how taxing emotionally and mentally it can be from my side as the editor and producer and everything. So um, you guys are on this journey with me. I'm learning as I go and I just really can't wait for you to hear it because There's a lot of good stuff to take away, and Sarah is just the best. She's so knowledgeable, so empathetic, so kind and understanding, and she's lived it. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Sarah Thompson Boyson. She was born and raised in Utah. She's 26 years old and owns a real estate company with her husband, Brayden. I approve of Brayden. (laughs) Sarah loves dogs. Thanks to Louise. We were roommates years ago. Emotional boundaries and traveling as much as she possibly can. When she was 16 years old, Sarah was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, and Tourette's syndrome, which we will cover in part two. Sarah is, has spent the last 10 years trying to figure out how to navigate treatment centers, family therapy sessions, countless medication changes, all while still attempting to be a functioning and decent human. Sarah continues to teach me, as you will see in this episode, just how much I didn't know as someone who's already living it. So there's so much to learn for all of us, and I hope you enjoy I do want to give a trigger warning for this episode. We do talk about our history with mental health, suicide, eating disorders, and self-harm. Please listen and watch at your own discretion. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, there is now a crisis hotline for the United States. It is 988. I'm very excited to have you. Anything, anything for you, honestly. You are someone in my life who really made an impact. And I want to be able to talk about how you made an impact because there were really simple things that you did for me because we hardly knew each other in like one of my darkest moments. I met you through Facebook Marketplace. (laughs) (laughs) I just felt like this is going to be good. I just got a gut feeling. And then we moved in on your birthday. We did. We did. (laughs) And I don't know if that was any indication to how wild I was going to be for a roommate, but we were trying to get a bed through your balcony. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) I will never because I had to take that bed back. 
at least the box spring. So we got the mattress in, but our we had like your parent, my like we had everyone trying to get that yeah. to happen. Yes. And then at the end of moving in, something like happened with our landlord. Yes. He was upset about something or whatever. And I was clearly at my breaking point. Mm-hmm. So I <laughs> had a meltdown. I hit rock bottom and my mom came over and we checked me into uni the mm-hmm. next day, which is a mental hospital. And I was just like, I'm going to have to tell this girl I'm going camping or something. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to tell people I'm going into Mm -hmm. a mental hospital. New territory for me. And then... The funny thing about this, and I don't know if I've told you this before, is we moved in and, you know, we had met a few times, right? Like, when we initially met each other, walked through the apartment, and then the day we moved in, and then, you know, basically the next day, like, you were gone. And so, first day you were gone, I was just kind of like, okay, like, Chelsea's not around. Then, like, I think it was, like, two more days. I was like, this is kind of odd. Chelsea and her dog are gone. Yes, Chelsea and her dog are gone. And I don't know why, but I just had, like, a gut feeling and I remember telling my sister, like, I think Chelsea's at uni. And she was like, what? And I was like, I don't know why. I just I, I just think so. And she was like, okay. And this actually popped up on my time hop, like, decently recently. And it was a picture of, like, a half-drink Jamba Juice and, like, three apples in the fridge. And I said... You don't put a half drink Jamba Juice and apples in the fridge if you're planning on going camping. Because there was a note that your mom left on the counter that said, like, Hi, Sarah, this is Chelsea's mom. Chelsea, you know, has gone camping with her friends and she doesn't have cell phone service. She will be back in a few days. It was, like, so random. Yeah. Also, talk about shame, like trying to hide. I was just like, this is a cover up. And the only reason I knew was because I had done this multiple times. Like I was the queen <laughs> of this. So that is the only reason I knew. But I knew like. It wasn't even until I got back. Like I got back and I think I left my water bottle that had my like, um, label maker name yes on it the red cup (laughs) they want you to stay hydrated in there which is good that's a good cup i still have but that was when you were like hey i have one of those too yeah i was like oh shit i have someone to talk to about this yes and i was completely fine after that i was like no i don't even have to worry about this i'm not embarrassed anymore yeah and that's that's really when it all started that we were just like BFFs. Yeah. <laughs> we knew that we could just kind of talk to each other about anything because I was just like, hey, like, I know it's kind of embarrassing to go to a like psych ward. Right. But I've gone like 18 times. So. <laughs> and honestly, that did help me. Like, sharing your story helps other people. And I yeah. know it was, was it scary for you to tell me that? Or not necessarily um, because I just, 
You were so confident I went. Yeah, I wasn't at that point scared to tell you because there had been a lot of times. But the first couple times, you know, I had gone in, I was so embarrassed. Um, You know, did the cover-ups, did, you know, whatever I could to kind of hide it. Um, You know, tried to tell people it was, you know, something medical, like something, you know, different medical um because for some reason that's okay yeah for some reason it is okay like if I you know had my appendix burst or had a kidney infection but it's not okay if you know I'm considering you know suicide or if I'm you know struggling with x y or z so um I'd gotten to a point where I really don't have any problem telling people about it talking about it now but I used to yeah and I think it takes a while to get to that point and some people don't ever yeah I think practicing telling your story and like getting to know the people who deserve to hear it versus the people who are just bystanders you know what I mean like even something like this because the internet hasn't like deserved the chance to like hear your story or that's not your path to like go share your story professionally. It's really those details are not important. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's the story of like I went. It's okay to go. And if you need someone to talk to, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. I remember because most of the times I the majority of my uni stays were in high school that's you know the you know I say I've gone like 18 times so it sounds like a ton and it kind of is but really it just depends you know for each person what they need um but yeah I really struggled when I was in high school and I had to go in a lot and but there were a few times after I graduated that I had to go in and one of the times was when we lived together and I remember I was so embarrassed because I went in and I went into one of the art therapy classes or one of the group therapy classes and I saw a friend, a mutual friend of ours who was actually one of the therapists leading the groups I have never been more embarrassed in my life and I just pretended like I did not know her and I still think about that sometimes I'm like I I ran into her as well while I was in there (laughs) and you want to know what I did I booked it to the bathroom (laughs) and I locked my ass in there and I was like oh shit But you know what? Like, she's so used to it. And she told me even before I went in there, I was like, do you ever, like, see your patients? And she's like, yeah. It's up to them to acknowledge me. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Oh, and she was so nice about it and just kept going on with the group like she didn't know me. And that was really cool of her. But I I was like, I should have just, like, at least smiled at her or, like, given her some, like, When you're in that state of mind, fuck off. (laughs) I was like, oh, I just, like like drawing or doing whatever like group activity they have us do in there and oh I think about that all the time I was like that was pretty embarrassing that was 
that was awkward but i i always tell myself like when i check out like this is going to be the last time but you never know when you're going to need a situation like that and i think i'm happy that they're there but i'm really happy that they're there yeah there was not a moment too long ago that um I made the call to see if they had a bed, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's it's kind of triggering to put yourself back in that spot yeah. and be like, okay, like, we're here again. Mm-hmm. And are we going to make it out? Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. But I think even scarier than going multiple times is not being here anymore. Yeah. And I know it's not really scary in the moment. Yeah. Which I think is something that people who have been suicidal don't talk about very much. Yeah. It's almost comforting. Yeah. But I think that's what people around them need to realize is that you could be like, well, don't do this for me and this person and that person. But it's like, you got to help the person who's in crisis find purpose for themselves. Yeah. Not to stick around for other people. Yeah. And it's hard when... You have somebody that you love that is suicidal. It's hard not to almost like beg them to stick around for you because sometimes it feels like maybe that is the only reason that they would. Um, Sometimes it's hard to give a person when someone's in that dark place to help them find a reason. Um, But you know that they love you and you know that they love their family. And so it's almost like you're just begging them to at least stick around for that. But yeah, when it comes down to it, that will actually never be enough. And that's a really sad, um, a really sad thought. And yeah. It's not something. I became a lot more compassionate for the people I've lost to suicide. Yeah. After I became suicidal. Yeah. Because you know, you're not thinking about other people. They're not doing it to spite anyone. Mm -hmm. They're not. It's just them in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really dark place. And I think, I think a lot of people will never get it. And I don't even know, honestly, if I truly get it, even though, I mean, I have attempted suicide and I have, you know, I think I can understand a lot more, but You still don't always, I still don't know quite what maybe was going through certain people that I've lost, you know, what was going through their mind. I I can't say that. Um, It's not always equal, right? Right. Like what I was dealing with and when I maybe attempted, it's not equal to what somebody else I lost was feeling in that moment. Um, So you kind of, you know, we'll never know. And that's a... Kind of a sad thought. Um, totally. Yeah. I guess we have like Reiki's and yeah. praying and 
whatever spiritual thing people believe in to, yeah. like, help find those answers for sure. Yeah. Do you believe in that? Like, do you believe that you could find those answers through any of that? I do. And I ebb and flow with, like, mm-hmm. my beliefs and spirituality and that. And sometimes I'm, like, really into it and it brings me a lot of comfort. But other times I'm like, how much of this? Because I am mentally ill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, like, gaslight myself a lot, right? <laughs> Like, am I making any of this up? Yeah. Uh, this fake? Yeah. Am I just believing this because that's an easy way out? Mm-hmm. Or what? I think it's really hard for me to see um, what I view as, like, powers <laughs> of other people. Okay. And, like, their validity. Okay. I've been messed up twice by this lady who read me like a book without knowing me. And in front of a group of people, okay? okay? She rocked my world. I'm not going to look at her as a god, though. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Or think that she has, like, all these extra things that I could never have. Mm-hmm. I like to look at it as we all have it within us. And I'm trying to be a better, healthier version of myself so that I can be my own compass more easily. Okay. And so I don't need to go to other people to find those comforts like I have in the past. And I think I'm everyone to each their own. For me, I've been a codependent kind of person all my life. And I'm trying to be less of that. And so this journey of my life is like really trying to figure out what I believe in. What helps bring me comfort through my past traumas, which do include losing a lot of people, mm-hmm. whether that be to suicide or other things. It's making sense of death, making sense of trauma. I have no idea. I have no clue. Yeah. So I go to therapy. I don't know. Everyone has their resources. And that's yeah. what's important is finding your resources that work for you. That's why I think therapy is just the best thing because it is essentially at least for therapy me is at least therapy for me is that's just me working through it like my with prompts from someone else yeah like my therapist I think in like shows and movies and stuff and maybe some therapists really are like this but my therapist isn't like preaching to me or really ever like, telling me how I should feel or, like, giving me a whole lot of, like, you know, feedback or advice. Like, if I ask for it, she will, but it's kind of rare. Like, most of the time, it's just an hour of me word vomiting and then five minutes of her, like, saying a few things and then me taking that in and then saying a bunch of stuff. And then I have, you know, a week to sit on that. And then it's that again. And it's crazy how, like, healing that is. And, like, honestly, I will not miss therapy for anything. Like, I will not reschedule my appointment. Like, I will be to therapy. Like, we could have a trip planned. I'm like, no, like, I will be to therapy. Like... It is that important to me because I go crazy without it. 
it is such a good thing. And I think it sounds like you found a good therapist that mixes well with you. My therapist is actually the same therapist that I had when I went into a treatment center when I was 16. So I went into a treatment center. It's called Youth Care. Shout out to Youth Care. <laughs> um, when I was like 16, no, 17. And I had this great therapist and we just meshed so well and she really helped me. And I worked with her, you know, I was in treatment for almost like from 17 to 18, basically. And we just like meshed so well. She really helped me and I was able to like graduate high school and kind of like move on and then I found out she was like in private practice and we've been working together for like four years, almost five, um, since, you know, so all together we've really been working together like eight years and that's awesome. I, I love it. I love her. And I think therapy is awesome. Sometimes people tell me like they're scared to try it. They don't want to try it. And I think people just need to like dip their toe in. Yeah. And I got a new therapist recently. How's that going? Um, I was really nervous. It took me a year and a half mm -hmm. to finally call one up and be like, really? help. Because I had a therapist from like 14 to 21. Yeah. And she was great. She really helped me. And she knew me really well. She knew my family. Like it just... I could talk to her about things and I feel like I got really good help and okay. like ways to manage that. And then um, I got a new therapist right before I went into uni after trauma, mm -hmm. trying to fix it myself. And then um, we worked together a little bit after I got out of uni, but she was Mormon and I was leaving the church or had just left years before. And um it just wasn't, it, yeah, it, yeah, she kept talking about herself a lot and I was like, yeah. And so I just kind of ghosted Yeah. and never you went back until now. What's that? You, you have to find a good therapist. Yeah. It's and like, match. I don't think she's a bad therapist. Yeah. Like it just didn't work for me. Not a good match. Mm -hmm. And so now I've found one that's a lot yeah. more holistic and really just looks at me yeah. talk. She just, like, same with you. She just watches me kind of, like, yeah. word vomit and figure shit out Yeah, on my That's own. Like, honestly, what you need. I had such a strange experience with therapy my first time. Like, right after my brother died, I was, like, 13. My mom was like, you need to go to therapy because, you know, yeah, would be a normal thing. And he died by suicide. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she would like have me lay down on the couch and have me like imagine because I wasn't sleeping like I would just go days you know without sleeping and she would have me imagine that an elephant was the alarm clock inside my head and that like for me to fall asleep that an elephant would like she wanted me to imagine that the elephant would like reach his trunk and turn off my brain for me to go to sleep and I think she was trying to like somehow like bring out the child like wonder and like because at that point I was just like 
I don't know if the child in me was dead. I don't know what she was Child's doing. Child's gone. We're growing up Child's fast gone. now. Like, there is no child in me anymore. But she, I think that's what she was doing. But it was so weird. Maybe like and, baby steps would have helped yeah. before just putting a elephant in your head. Mm-hmm. And then she would just like do intercessions. And I just remember being so weirded out thinking like, okay, that's what therapy is. Like a woman like puts animals inside your brain. And so I never, I did not want to go back. I don't blame you. And then my next experience with therapy was my parents picking me up from school one day saying, hey, Sarah, you're going to the doctor and being like, okay, like we have a doctor's appointment. And then admitting me to uni. (laughs) Mom and dad. Yeah. And so that was, and then it was like. In hindsight, are you grateful for that experience or are you still kind of like, "Mm." um, I'm grateful because, I mean, I was like dying. So I. Explain that if you don't um, mind. I mean, I think I was like a junior in high school and I... So thir- from 13 to junior year, mm-hmm. which is 17. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so my brother, yeah, David died and it was obviously really traumatic Um we like my mom my dad and my sister all saw you know his death and um like he hung himself and so we found him and so i think that that was just like a lot for anyone to see a lot for like a kid to see and um but i was you know, very much a perfectionist and just kind of went right back to school. I mean, I went back to school like two days later. Suppress, suppress, suppress. Joined, you know, like tried out for all the plays, all the, you know, all the student council things. Like I was just like You cheered too, yeah? Yeah. Um, And so I just was doing all the things, cross country, all the things. Stay busy. busy, I can't think about it if I'm not idol yeah and at the same time I think my parents were going through a lot and at that point it was just me my mom and my dad living at home and it was a sad a sad place to be um and I started really struggling with anorexia and bulimia and for me it was just whatever whichever one served me best at the moment basically because my parents did start to notice like you know hey you're not eating you know we're kind of worried about you boom like I could kind of switch it like to whatever one served me best and I was doing that you know really consistently for like three years You know, sorry to cut you off. I just read something that eating disorders are very similar to having an alcohol, like being an addict and drinking Mm -hmm. excessively, right? You're an alcoholic and then having um, like a substance abuse issue. 
I've read that they're very similar in the brain. So I can see where like the manipulation comes in. I've done it myself with Mm -hmm. mine, you know, where it's like, okay, they're noticing I'm not eating. So I have to eat now Mm -hmm. and then I'll just throw it up later. When I've also... Because that's survival. You have the eating disorder Mm -hmm. to survive in your brain. Yeah. And so when that starts to get looked at or other people are noticing it and wanting to stop it, you're like, no, 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 we got to keep this guy around. Yeah. That's helping me. And the other thing about eating disorders that I've heard, and maybe this isn't the same for everyone, but eating disorders are often not about food. Um, Control. It's control. And for me, like, I know some people really struggle, like, with eating. Um, For me, like, I didn't, if, I didn't necessarily struggle at that time with eating. Like, you liked food. You enjoyed food. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed food. um, But I also could not eat very easily, you know, as long as I had some sort of control. So, um, if I was eating, I definitely was purging. Um, but if I, you know, wasn't purging, um, I was restricting. I was also, you know, running cross country and I was loving it. I mean, I was, then I felt like that was something I was consistently rewarded for from my peers. Um, and that is like throwing a match on yeah the fire isn't it or whatever the phrase is it's yeah, like on the flame. i'm yeah i'm doing really terrible things to myself mm-hmm. and i'm getting praised for it yeah constantly yeah because society wants you to be thin and so yeah. it's other per- people projecting themselves on you right like maybe yeah. they wish they were thinner i started to just tell people they're like, Chelsea, you're so thin. Or, Chelsea, you look great. I'm like, yeah. Just crippling anxiety and depression. Yeah. Great diet. Yeah. Like, what, what are you supposed to say when people are doing that and that's helping you be bad to yourself? Yeah. And I think at, like, that age, and, like, to their credit, I think girls in high school – don't know any better I think like women our age should know better than to be complimenting girls or women girls whatever on their bodies anyone like if you can't fix it in five seconds don't talk to me about it but I think the girls who were you know saying things to me and all of that you know, I think they had the best intentions and most of it was they were saying it out of their own insecurities. And mm-hmm. and then on top of that, I was also cutting. I started cutting um, and that became a whole, you know, other thing, which is strange. You know, cutting is a very self-harm is such a strange like addiction and it's like a oh, coping mechanism. And uh-huh, like I was. Cutting, burning myself, um, and then I was, yeah, I was also struggling with um, hallucinations and... Well, you're not eating. Mm-hmm. And um, 
also having like some PTSD like responses during that time. They always come back. <laughs> they like swear to God. Yeah. PTSD you'll think is like, I'm doing good. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so my parents picked me up from school one day, told me they were taking me to the doctors. Dropping off, you know, at the psych ward. I say it like, you know, they were, it's, it's really what needed to happen. Um, and then I wasn't really in school, like in a traditional school for basically a year. And then I did, you know, uni. And then I did this program called Teen Scope at the U. And then I did youth care. And then... We liked youth care, you said. I liked youth care. Good experience. Um, because it was more, you know, uni and teen scope were very, like, clinical. It felt like you were in a hospital. Yeah. Um, a prison. Yeah. And youth care felt more like you were kind of living in, like, a... It was more like a boarding school type thing. Um you were in a home type thing. Like had your own room. Mm, ha- shared a room with four girls. It felt more like a home, but you still had like a lot of staff and... Um, well, you're on suicide watch still. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, but it definitely felt more manageable. You got to go to school um, while you were there and... Wear regular clothes? The school was in the home, yes. You wore regular clothes, okay. not scrubs. I mean, you couldn't wear, like, shoes right. unless you're outside. But people were there longer, so you made more connections. Okay. Because in, you know, like, uni, people are usually there for, like, a week and a half. Yeah, as soon as you make that connection, either you're leaving, they're leaving, mm-hmm. and you might never see each other again. You're encouraged yeah. not to yes. connect. So it, it just was a better experience for me. I was there two different times and I felt like that's where I made the most progress. Um, uni is definitely there to when you are feeling really unsafe, it's there to get you stable and get you on to the next step. Um, and then youth care or like more of a residential treatment center is there to kind of help you transition to like home life. And honestly, when I graduated, from youth care in high school, I felt like pretty ready to take on the world. I was not. <laughs> oh no. I was definitely doing better. I just think I felt like I was like so smart and so ready and like. Well, to your defense, I kind of felt like that at the end of my stay at uni because yeah. they build you up so oh, much, yeah. right? It's just like inflate their heads. These people are, like, really yeah. talking down to themselves, so we have to talk up to them. Oh, yeah. I can see how that... And I almost thought I knew more than, like, any of... Like, this sounds so bad. I thought I knew more than any of my friends. Like, I felt like I had so much life experience, which in some ways I did. Yeah, totally. Like... Some kids never well, my know. my friends had been in, like, high school. <laughs> I had been in psych wards. So I felt like I knew. Listen, you'd seen some shit. I had seen some shit. I had seen kids talking to walls. I had seen the, what is the room where you're in and you're in a straight jacket? Mm-hmm. I had been in that room. Like solitary confinement type mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. 
And so... It's it's stuff out of the movies. The movies don't make things up. Yeah. They dramatize it a little bit. Yeah. But it's all there. I felt like I was in Girl Interrupted. Yeah. The second I walked in there. Yep. And then they make you take off all your clothes. Mm-hmm. And there's like three women in there and they're like, hey. They're like, there's a scar there. There's a this there. They're like, yep. I've done this plenty of times before. I'm like, I already don't want to be here. Could we make this mm-hmm. worse? The worst is like when you are a regular. Like for a while there, we joked that our family like should have like a frequent like flyer pass. Dude. Because I had gone so many times in like a short amount of time. You're like, where's my suite? Yeah. Because by the time I graduated high school, I think I had gone 17 times. Holy shit. Um, and to so, give people some perspective. Mm-hmm. Like... That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. I was doing really bad. <laughs> but I think the continuous effort to try yeah. speaks volumes to your life. Yes. And I have done really great since then. Um, I had, you know, a couple rough, rough patches since then. But, you know, I haven't. It's been like four years well, and that's saying a lot that like yeah. when you go through treatment, like you can go through really hard things in your life again. Mm-hmm. And now you have all these skills and resources and tools mm-hmm. in your backpack that you yeah. can like use to help you get through it. It's and so one true. of those tools is going back to the place. Yes. And it doesn't mean here's the thing is sometimes when you feel like you have to go back and this happens with going back to treatment, it kind of happens with like relapse. It doesn't mean you're back at ground zero. And I hate when sometimes it really feels that way. Like you're starting back at the beginning or back at zero. You're not because you've still come all the way that you did before. You're just resetting, you know, to a certain point. You're not back at the beginning. That's Um, important to note for sure. But yeah, it's been, I mean... I think over four years, over five years since, you know, I've even considered going back. Um, And that doesn't mean, like, that I'm better or worse. It just means, like, hey, the, you know, it works. It's good to do. And it's okay to go in and get help. But um, I really have, like, no shame around it anymore. Um, I don't either much. Yeah. I think the more I talk about it, the more comfortable I get. Yeah. I think that's really good. Obviously, I'm not trying to go sh- like just yell at everywhere I'm at. Put on job resume. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it would be nice to get to a point where it can be more casually talked about in an uplifting sort yeah. of way. Yeah. Instead of, oh, they're talking about suicide. What a drag. Seriously. It's like, no, this is something that impacts a lot of people. Yeah. A lot. And it's just growing. Yeah. So ignoring it's not going to do anyone any good. No. Well, and the way, like, suicide is talked about, it's so interesting because, first of all, I, suicide is talked about very negatively. It's very much avoided it's quite frankly talked about as a crime like I saw this video and this was like 
recently and there was a man in a mall who attempted suicide and the you know the firefighters came and you know after the firefighters EMTs came and helped him they turned him in to the police for um as a crime like he was like disrupting the peace or like like in some areas like suicide is still um considered a crime like you murdered yourself yeah well i mean that's why like the term committing suicide you're committing yeah it's been considered like for so many years as a crime because it actually was considered a crime is that why the language is changing to died by suicide Mm -hmm. then yes okay and the reason that it's important and why sometimes I correct people, and it's not because I'm trying to be like, no, oh, no, don't say that. It's it's important because criminalizing suicide actually doesn't only not, it doesn't only discourage people from attempting. Like, it's not like people hear, oh, this is a crime, I'm not going to do it. It actually makes it so that people who are struggling and who are considering suicide, who are suicidal, it makes it so that they are scared to reach out for help. It makes it so that they feel ashamed because it is such a like shameful topic because... How dare you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because of how we talk about it. So it's more than just like, oh, don't say committed suicide, say died by suicide. Because there's so many things like in our culture, so many, you know, say, you know. Just phrases. Yeah, say fra- say different phrases. There's Sayings. so many things that we are like adjusting. But a lot of these things that we have to adjust really are important if you look at the root and it's not just, you know, this generation being like so picky or so like, I don't know. I look at it a sensitive. lot. Yeah. I look at it a lot like um, kind of in parallel to the disability community, mm-hmm. right? Where there were always just people without disabilities, mm-hmm. making the rules, making the verbiage, like the phrases like mm-hmm. handicapped did not come from someone with a disability. <laughs> yeah. S- sorry. Didn't. No. Um, it came from people who don't live it every day. Yeah. Don't understand it. And then that puts a stigma on it because yeah. how could they? Mm-hmm. They're, this is something unknown. And so it's a little nerve wracking or scary. Right. Yeah. But if it were to be explained and educated by people like us who have mm-hmm. actually gone through it. We use the right terms. Mm-hmm. We can actually help communicate what that looks like because those people didn't commit suicide. Mm-hmm. That's how they died. Yeah. That's how their life ended. They didn't commit anything. Yeah. Somebody died of cancer. They didn't commit cancer. They died cancer. of an illness. Yeah. Somebody died of suicide. They, you know, they died by an illness. And people who are struggling with thoughts of, ideation yeah they are now so scared to reach out because there is so much stigma around it and could you imagine being like hey i have cancer i'm really sorry to bother you yeah no and 
I remember one of the things like I remember the most um, when David died was I was so scared. Not because I believed this, because I didn't. I never had, I never believed this. I was so scared that my friends, my neighbors, my ex like extended family, um, people in my church were going to think David was going to hell. Oh, yeah, because that's a thing in religion. Yeah, and just like I think our like kind of society a little bit. But yeah, I was 13 years old and I just remember being like trying to like really explain to people like, you know, like he's not going to hell, right? Like really nervous that like his friends, people he loved, like I really wanted people to know like that that's not going to happen. You know that, right? And I think people... I don't really think there were that many people who believed that, but I just remember being so scared. Like, I don't want anyone to think that 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 would be the worst thing I can imagine. Because he was amazing. He was amazing. He was the best kid. He was, you know, the smartest person I knew, a great student. He, you know, played sports. He wrestled, played football. He ran track. He was um, like an honor student. He was a great brother and... You know, there was nothing about him that would put him in this category um, that sometimes these terms or these labels would make it seem like he was, you know, not this great, great kid. Well, and especially in um, the Mormon religion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like we all want to go to the same tier of mm -hmm. heaven. Yeah. So it gets a little more complicated when your whole community believes that whole yeah. You know, like, because even if, like, me, I'm not going to go to the same tier as my parents. Yeah. In their minds, you know. So, like, with me, I'm just going into the ground after this. But for other people who believe that and then they're projecting that onto other people who are grieving, mm -hmm. that's got to be so much harder. Because then, like you're saying, you're advocating for this person who's not even here anymore and you're a child. Yeah. What? I think especially when it comes to grief, people need to, I think always people need to leave their beliefs about death and the afterlife out of what Just say I'm sorry. and beliefs have to do with it. But especially with death, like, really that should have nothing to do with, you know, your beliefs. Um, you'll see him again you'll it's all these things that other people believe themselves yeah. that they're putting on mm -hmm. those grieving yeah which I believe the intention is nothing but pure I get that I struggle when people are less aware at what their words are doing to people yeah you can be as religious as you want if you're not very aware you're gonna be implicating those beliefs on other people implicating is not the right word i'm looking for i don't think projecting those beliefs onto yeah. other people and so it's really hard because then you're getting to a community side you're getting to all of that whereas like they should be coming up to you and be like what can i do for you yeah is there anything i can do he was great totally and nothing can change that yeah and we had like so many great people 
I mean, we had like a family. I don't even know who it was, but like my dad like loves chocolate milk. That's like his thing. And we had a family who like every week would put a gallon of chocolate milk on our porch at night. And I don't know like who it was, but like I just remember like that was like such a special thing. And it just like was really cool. Like we had really great people surround us. Good. Um, but the thing about grieving is eventually like the things stop but your grieving really never does and that's like yeah, like remember. how long how long do they put the milk out on the porch? like it was a long like I remember like it was like you know a couple months right but as that other person you're wondering like when do I stop when do I keep yeah. going like do they even like this yeah and it's hard because yeah grieving like never stops you never stop hurting and but it's hard because the things stop coming you know the the flowers the meals the you know the notes but you're always going to just be grieving for that person and and it's hard because you don't like obviously you don't expect no. you know the things to keep coming but it is hard when it's like, oh, everyone else, like, stopped caring. Is and moving on. Even, like, little things. Like, you know, there was a Facebook page and it, you know, would get filled with, like, notes and comments and pictures for so long. And then people stopped posting. Mm-hmm. And then it would be, like, just on the year, year of his death, you know, people would post. And now it's like, okay, maybe a couple people still post. And it's like, you don't, I don't hold any accountability on people to do that but it does like just remind you that like grieving is like a really lonely place to be it's it's lonely the only people that you know we have are really like our family and I guess at least we have you know them Mm -hmm. so and everyone does it so differently Mm -hmm. yeah like you went and put yourself in a bunch of sports and yeah stayed busy you know other people could just completely shut down and be like i'm not leaving the house yeah and both of those are okay totally as long as you like take care of yourself you know when you finally did and yeah one of the hardest things is helping somebody if you know they are suicidal and the best thing you can do is just you know let them know that you're there and i think you know, stick with them, offer them resources. And help them get to those resources because, honestly, if I didn't have someone in my life helping me get mm-hmm. things done and, like, calling therapists because yeah. no one has any room right mm-hmm. now. Like, you have to get yourself on a waiting list mostly. Like, and it's when you're already not, like, showering, brushing your teeth, yeah. eating, whatever, you're not going to be able to get to those resources like someone who's well would totally. be able to. And they're made for people who are well, like yeah. the navigating of them. And so if you're able to offer some time to help them, like, fill out the form, go to the doctor, drive them here or there, you know, like, do those things, I think that's pretty impactful as well because – they're just not going to do it. Yeah. They've given up, you know? And so doing those chores, that's not going to be helpful. It's going to be more detrimental. Yeah. The other most important thing is 
if you are helping somebody who is struggling to take care of yourself. Yeah. Because it is very draining mm-hmm. emotionally, physically, all the things to be, to love someone, to take care of someone, to be a support system for somebody who is not not only like suicidal, but who is mentally ill. And especially if they are like to the point where they like are unable to take care of themselves. That's mm-hmm. basically... It's a very difficult place to be in. So, like, taking care of yourself and that is the most important thing. It's all in here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you even... I'm in the same boat. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I'm still trying to figure out my mental health. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a psychologist here. We're just here talking yeah. about our own experiences. But I think sharing our story... Even if it helps one person, I've noticed that that's all I need. Yeah. And that fills my cup more than I could ever ask for. And that's honestly why I started this podcast. But I think we've come to some good, like, resources. Be honest and open and be a safe place for people. Yeah. If you're wondering why none of your friends have ever come to you and you've they've been, like, opening up about being in a bad spot it's because you haven't let them know that you would be a safe place yeah and also like a lot a lot of times like your friends don't expect you to fix their problems like maybe a few like i don't know one or some people couple like who are that kind of person but most of the time if a friend is coming to you they just need somebody to like kind of unload on for a second or just to like have that person that they could kind of trust that's all I mean I had a friend who I learned this from and I love it I should do it more I don't remember it always but asking people hey do you have the emotional and mental capacity for me to vent for a minute Mm, yeah are you in a spot where that'd be okay that's really great and that's why you have like a network of people Mm -hmm. right you have your support network I've got my mom, my dad, siblings, like you have people and different friends for different moments and different things. Yeah, that's really smart. To think that like you only need one person, yeah. that poor person, mm-hmm. you're going to drown them too. Yeah, and also poor you because to think that that one person is going to be able to give you everything that you need and to be able to be everything for you, like... You're that, setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, you are because... We need, like, people in our lives. And I don't have, like, a ton of people, but and you don't need millions of friends to be happy, but, you know. Dude, quality over quantity. Yeah, quality over quantity. I do not have a lot of quantity, but. <laughs> Me either. I'm, I'm unfriending left and right, so I'm so <laughs> sorry. I am good for the quality, so that's what I'm all about. Yeah. I'm so freaking glad to have you. Same, same. I feel like we were just, we met each other at the perfect time. We were both just struggling. It was struggle bus at that town home. It was struggle bus. We would just check in. I would like to say one thing. One thing that you can do for your friends, especially if they're your roommates. We got down to a good system where I was like, okay, if you're door is closed 
for like a whole day ever. We got to the point where we'd let each other like knock. Hey, how you doing? Hey, do you need lunch? Hey, do you need anything? Like you were working retail. So Mm -hmm. you had like full days off in the middle of the week and it'd be kind of random. I was working at a tech company. Mm -hmm. So I had all weekend to just die in my room, Mm -hmm. whatever that looked like. And we looked out for each other without any sort of, like, shame. Like, I could be like, oh, Sarah knocked on my door twice today and I still haven't come out. But she doesn't care. She's not looking at me. okay in there? Yeah. Does Louise need a walk? There were some times because I – that was when I first started, like, using cannabis for my PTSD. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you for carrying me up to my room from the living room so many times. My dog would ditch me. She'd be yeah, like, I'm Louise going to bed. would be like, bye, mom. I'm going upstairs. Sarah will bring you up later. <laughs> it's so bad. But it's little, it really is little things like that. It's like, no judgment, dude. Yeah. I'm just here and I'm glad you're not alone. We had such a, like a very safe relationship. Best, like, honestly, such a good roommate relationship. I wish I could go back. I know you're married. I know. Can I move in? <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> Brayden? Bring Louise. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching or listening to Who the Chill Cares. I'm your host, Chelsea, and I hope you give a fuck too. If you would like, rate, subscribe, share, comment, DM me. I want to know your guys' feedback on these episodes. I, it helps me learn and grow and give you guys what you want to listen to. So I'm really excited about the upcoming, upcoming episodes and I hope you are too. Ma'am? Louise? Leave it. Leave it. Leave it.